sort of talking about what that what that is, right? Like that that in order to uh, heal the sick land, in order to realize our potential, there, there's these hidden powers yes. that we can access, right? We can we can become more than we are, and that these forces and intelligences are sort of guiding that process for better or worse, and ambiguously, but there are certain abilities that we can kind of bring out of ourselves. Four and five both kind of look at Here with Jeremy Johnson, um, we're talking Mutants and Mystics by Professor Jeff Kripal of Rice University. We're talking about um, telling ourselves stories to elevate ourselves to the level of the gods themselves, if that makes any sense. Does that make sense to you, Jeremy? Does that sound like a good summation? Yeah, I would say that's the, that's the general arc of this book and a lot of Jeffrey Kripal's research in looking at... I think he calls it elsewhere, you know, the, the old culture behind culture, right? The, uh, in, in consciousness studies, we would say, you know, the transpersonal elements of uh, literature and writing and looking at writing and storytelling itself as a kind of mystical practice, right? Like, it's almost like Shuangza and the idea of the butterfly and the man dreaming of the butterfly. And it's kind of like cultures are, are our cultural... You know, Stories are our cultural dreams, right? These are the narratives we've been kind of dreaming and telling ourselves. But those narratives themselves have this kind of transformative agency, right? In that eventually we take ownership of being the dreamers of these stories and we self-author. Right. And I, that, that's the kind of the takeaway I got from this book. And as soon as you mentioned us going over it uh, together, you know, that, that's immediately what, what popped in my mind, this idea of self-authorship. And we're going to get into that when we get into the later phases um maybe we should define myth myth memes <laughs> yeah well so I, what you just said i wrote this down that um the main takeaway of what what Kripal calls the super story which is sort of it's a story beyond the story i guess or the the, the overarching story um the main takeaway of the super story is agency the word you just used we evolve through a growing sense that we are being written until we finally awaken to the realization that we can, our, can write ourselves, author our own story, our own evolution, i.e. become like the gods that we talk about. And what Kripal does in this book is talk a great deal about much more modern myths like science fiction, some fantasy, but mostly science fiction and particularly comic books. So the stories that we have been creating since, since you know, our own evolution sort of took a turn, right? As, as uh, spiritual ideas began to give way to scientific ideas, and then a lot of what Kripal is talking about is 
these scientific ideas in turn must give way again to spiritual ideas, but with a better understanding of it, right? So there's a better understanding of the early kind of storytelling to see where we fit into it, which is as participants, not victims and not uh, viewers or, you know, in, not, not, not consuming the story, but participating in the story. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were talking about the mythemes. This is a word that Kripal made up. I don't like saying it. I think it's a weird word. Uh, it looks funny on the page, but it does make sense. It is a good word. It sort of combines theme, myth, and meme, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? Is it, I think all three of those elements are within that word. M-Y-T-H-E-M-E-S. Um, what he's done is he's created seven elements to define his super story. And Jeremy and I are going to go through each one, and we're going to get Jeremy's thoughts on, on how they work. So I'm just going to read this. This is from the book um, about why he calls, calls what he's talking about a super story. I call it a super story for spiritual reasons. I call it a super story because the mythical themes and paranormal currents that give it life are commonly experienced by artists, writers, and readers as realities entirely above and beyond super, the material histories of plot design, character development, artistic layout, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Despite the fact that the mythemes are clearly historical products, this is a story that often ends, like the time-transcending experiences of Alan Moore and Grant Morrison, comic book writers. Um, a story whose very purpose is to project the reader beyond his or her constructed relative written world. So he's suggesting that the world that we live in is written and we are being written. And then eventually he's going to get to the idea that we can awaken to the idea that we can write ourselves. Okay. So as a set of separable and independent mythenes, the super story looks something like this. And I'll just say what these things are. No, let's just let's go through them. The first one is divination. And he says, again, reading Kripal, Western culture has been influenced for millennia by forms of intelligence that have appeared under the divine. And traditionally, these intelligences have taught, guided, warned, saved, awed, and terrified individuals. Um. He talks about how people have long sought communion with these super beings, right? So gods, Mm -hmm. their transformative energies. They have also sought practical control over protection from these sacred powers through the techniques of magic, ritual, temple building, prayer, sacrifice, and worship. I feel like we could talk about this from, from like an integral perspective, right? So this is early mythological, magical thinking. The world mm-hmm. is a magical place. And yeah. Well, let's, yeah, now I think we can launch into it here. Um, divinization, demonization. I like that there's a, a flip side to that, right? Uh, in, in, in cultural evolution and really in many pre-modern societies, it was an acknowledgement that there were non-human, very often incorporeal or maybe animistic presences that had an influence on people. And even the word person, persona, means to sound through. 
And it was really about different beings and, and deities, or we would say maybe today archetypes that are, that are sounding through us. So that's sort of the divinization aspect that I think he's talking about. There are all of these influences, forces, intelligences that make up or help to produce human culture. Like the gods give us the gifts of civilization, like agriculture or writing. You know, there's always kind of myths like that. Um, or they or they sound through us to give us our stories, like the muses, for instance. But the flip side of that, which is why he has demonization there, at least I think, is that this is sort of seen as as something in the modern age as, as very negative. And it has increasingly been demonized. It went from daimon to demon in that sense. It became a sort of a negative stigma. Um, so we, we, we are sort of, there's an ambiguity in that, right? Because... These are forces and intelligence, intelligences that might produce culture and give us the gifts of civilization and give us influence in, in art and inspiration and art and creativity. But then the other side of that is, you know, where are we in that picture, right? There's all of these mm -hmm. influences that are going on um, in this particular theme here. But where are we in that picture in terms of our own agency and our own autonomy? Um, so I, I, I kind of hold it as sort of this ambiguous openness and permeability to non-human intelligence and influence that he's one thing about. that i think is particularly uh interesting about that is the idea that um these intelligences these influences that you're talking about are not human right so early on human beings recognized there's something out there that's beyond us right uh, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a higher power. It's, it's, it's an at least equal and probably higher power. Right. And they, they saw several of them. They saw them in nature. They saw them, um, in spirit, whatever. But my point is, as we became more rational, as, as the era of rationality and materialism came in about 500 years ago, we stopped acknowledging those other possibilities and it and it all it became about us navigating sort of a more or less dead world you know or it's more like a world of objects they might be living but they're not sentient and you know earth becomes the center of the universe and 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 we become like the highest possible thing which i've always thought was kind of Silly. I mean, it's implied in, in any form of, of um, that rationalism. Um, but it's interesting that so from the beginning, there was an acknowledgement of much more than, than meets the eye mm -hmm. and an attempt to interact with it, an attempt to be influenced by it positively or to not be influenced by it negatively, right? Yeah, I think um, just to kind of uh, to, to build up the thesis here, the first theme, uh, this is something that many different scholars of cultural evolution and, and history have looked at. Like you have Charles Taylor, who talks about this process as the buffering of the self. Like this idea that, you know, we didn't have that filter or that buffer between the self and these other forces, whether they were animals and the rest, rest of the natural environment or the tribe, or uh, these non-human or perhaps even ancestral presences. So there's this kind of permeability of the self and world that existed in these earlier societies that we have moved away from in the process of cultural evolution 
Um, you know, Jean Gepser talks about this. Uh, Owen Barfield is another, uh, he's a British scholar who talks about this as well. He studies like sort of the evolution of language and how earlier forms of the English language had a very different relationship to the world. Very similar in this, this sort of process of the narrowing down of the self, but also with that comes kind of an agency that we didn't have before. We, we are self-separating. Mm-hmm. And that gives us ego, that gives us autonomy, that gives us self-determination. But then when that's overextended, that creates all of these problems that, that you're re- referring to in the modern world, this sort of alienation. And that's one of the themes here, but we're going yeah. to play with that, actually. Um, how alienation, I think, kind of feeds this other kind of more supernatural alienation, um, mm-hmm. kind of feeding it back to us in, in inverse or reverse. But... Yes. So, so I think this is sort of the general process in, in terms of being one of the themes that Kripal talks about is important because many of the comic book stories that we're going to explore or at least referenced and that Kripal does bring this theme back in full right. force. And I think he talks about it in this book and in other books that, that science fiction, comic books, um, this kind of pop cultural play that reintroduces the supernatural gives us a thought like, um, how to call it, uh, it gives us permission to yeah. bring the world of demonization, d- divinization back and begin well, to think about these things again. Because I, I think, th- I mean, you, you just brought the, the comic books into it. I think it's important to, to, to make clear well, when we're talking about this, these, these points, these, these mythemes of the super story, he's talking about stories. So when he's talking about um, Devonization and demonization. He's talking about stories that do that. So old yeah. mythology, o- o- the the original stories that we told ourselves. Um, and I think an interesting point to bring the comic books into it. Something that's going to we'll see the arc of this throughout all seven of these these um, myth themes that he's that he talks about. For example, Thor is a good example. The Marvel Comics Thor, but Thor, obviously, everyone knows, is is the god of thunder in Norse mythology. You see the difference of what you're talking about in that. It, there's a the original th- deity is you know it's an explanation of why there's lightning in the sky. It's it's um, the, and and everything that goes along with that. All of the stories, all of the myths. Marvel Comics in the 1960s took those stories, took those same myths, they actually retold them, but they're telling them from a different perspective that's going to incorporate a lot of what we're talking about going through, which is that this is a real guy, right? It's just, he, he's from another world. He's actually a space alien. We, we mistake this as gods, and they do kind of, uh, in the story, they acted that way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, these Asgardian gods really were hanging around on Earth in, you know, 800 BC, uh, AD or whenever, you know, whenever Odin and his pantheon is alleged to, to take place, they were there and they were interacting with people and people did take them that way. But in the 1960s, we can see these are actually just advanced. It's an advanced alien race. And there is such a thing as magic. There is, you know, as I believe Thor says in, a, in one of the movies, I come from a place where, where magic and science are basically the same thing. Like what you view as science and what you view as magic, it's all kind of the same thing. They, they've, re, they've 
long ago reincorporated those ideas um, because there is a larger world outside of what you can, you know, study with a protractor or measure with a microscope. There's more to that. And it, it would be a scientific thing to do to uh, learn how to work with it, right? <laughs> to acknowledge it and, and let it to be, become a part of what you do. So again, Kripal is talking about human consciousness evolution through time via stories, either saying that the stories are helping to cause it or the stories are at least chronicling it. You could look at it either way. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to the second one. So from, from the early stories focusing on devonization and demonization, uh, he comes to orientation. And Kripal says, for much of Western history, this sacred source of power and wisdom was traditionally located, quote, far away, long, long ago, and more often than not, in the East. But there were other strategies as well. Africa and the New World, for example, also fulfilled a similar symbolic function, as did, myth- you know, as did mythical lands like Atlantis, Lemuria, the center of the earth the unreachable primordial past, uh, the hyperborean age, and so on. Each of these imaginative constructs oriented the Western religious imagination to the sacred as somewhere else. So again, like he's quoting the opening of Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. These are fairy tales. But the, the idea is you are in this place where you're living your everyday humdrum life. You are going to die just like your parents did. You know, the, the world is a little bit small for you, but somewhere else, all of this magic and power and, and well, I was going to say science, but it's not science yet. We have to wait. <laughs> we have to wait for part three before science really starts to come into it. But so all of the good stuff is happening somewhere else. And it allows you to imagine it because you are physically not there. Again, we're talking about older stories. What do you think about that? Yeah, so um, I'm just thinking about how often this comes up. Uh, a few months ago on Neura Learning, the, the education platform that I host, um, we did a class with Becca Tarnas about Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this doesn't really show up a lot in The Lord of the Rings, but it, The Lord of the Rings would actually fit very well as one of these themes, at least one, even though it's not science fiction, because of Numenor. And it's basically an Atlantean myth, right? And Tolkien himself mentioned that he had an Atlantean complex where he would dream of a flood, he would dream of this lost civilization, that the the, the sources, and this is you know similar in ancient Greece, um, it, where they talked about Atlantis as well. And then they did orientation as well with Egypt in terms of you know the, the source or the site of very, very ancient wisdom would yeah. be out you know in to the south in Egypt. Um, there's many and, and and in the great distant past, right? Solon mm-hmm. and and long, know, long time ago, right? Yeah. Retelling <laughs> stories that he heard from Egyptian priests who knew it from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands of years ago. Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, even in Mesoamerica, I believe the Aztecs had this sort of um, origin story that the, there was this ancient wise people that came from the lands of the north. So, so wisdom is always far away. It's always, it's always lost somehow. 
Um, now, like, I like William Irwin Thompson's interpretation of this um, from a book called The Time Falling Beings Take to Light, which sort of looks at the Atlantean complex and theme. Such a, such a cool title. Say that I again. know. It's my favorite book to just mention to people because say, of the say title. Say the title again. It's so great. The Time Falling Beings Take to Light. To Light. All right. It's a very Gnostic book um, looking at myth. But... I find it interesting as a theme, the kind of the spiritual elements of this theme is, yeah, wisdom is far away. We've somehow fallen from it. And there, there's a kind of a nostalgia for it, a kind of inaccessibility, a desire to kind of reach back into the deep past. Um, and, and this is sort of, for, for Thompson anyway, a very Gnostic theme that would fit very well into this book, which is that we've sort of fallen away from some higher world, or from spirit for some from some spiritual dimension and that these myths in, in a sense are kind of a story of the soul right mm-hmm. it's a story of the gnostic fall away from some place of of crowned wisdom that we sort of degraded from over over history fallen into time and history right so it's, it's just a powerful archetypal idea and you begin to see the progress that kripal is talking about here too right so at first there is the the world of the gods and there's little you and now through orientation you you begin to see what i like to call the aspirational aspect of these stories because suddenly when you start thinking of it as far away there's the idea that you could go there right it's like it's it's a it's an acknowledgement that i'm here but this greater thing exists and it's over there. Like, I'm not, I don't know that I can get there. But, but the stories are always about somebody who did. It's not everybody. It's the guy who can build the canoe and isn't afraid to take it all the way down the river to the ocean. And the ocean opens up and sends him somewhere else. And, yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're in a small world like that, everything is, a, you know, you're going to a new world. You're going to a new place. You're meeting new people. They do new things strange animals, all that kind of stuff. But you begin to see, even at stage two of this, the idea of participating in it is coming, right? Because we're going, we're working up towards this, you are being written, our story is being written. It is some kind of a fantasy that is coming in from outside. But the, the realization at the end of this seven things that we're going through is, oh, you're writing this. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're writing an incoherent story. But if you're aware that you are writing it, suddenly you can take the reins. You can take the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. And I'm just pointing out that through orientation, we're taking a step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... it's um. You know, it, it's it's about on a spiritual level, it's about a a restoration of the soul, right? Mm-hmm. And at a gnostic level, what you're saying, this is the kind of the, the heretical element of it, what makes it so gnostic, and it's this idea that um, we can self-authorize. Eventually, we're beginning that step, but eventually, you know, the gods are kind of they're initiating us into a kind of a co-creative act, right? Like. They're saying, yeah, we've been authoring you, but guess what? You know, the, you have a part of our power in you that you can participate in this process. Um, now, there's different ways of looking at it. 
And I don't, I don't want to divert too far into Tolkien's writing, but he has a very similar concept, which he calls subcreation. Now, he, he kind of nests it in a more traditional Catholic imagination. So it's a very humble aspect, like you're not really going to be like the gods, but you can kind of participate creatively like they do. So it's a much more humbled version. I think the Gnostics are saying, and, and what's going on in this book is saying, it's much more radical than that. It's, it's a much more powerful thing that we have to wrestle with. Um, and I don't remember if, if, if uh, Kripal talks too much about Jung in this book. He talks a, a lot about him, I think. Okay. Um, Jung has a very interesting book that might dovetail in just with this theme before he moves to the next one, and it's called uh, Answer to Job. And in Answer to Job, uh, basically Jung is wrestling with, well, why is God, who is this both you know, powerful, creative, benevolent being, also this terrible being? Like the, the, the answer to Job. How do we answer Job's, um, from the Bible, his plight? And for Jung, it's the sense that God is sort of, he has a sort of Gnostic version of God where there's a dark side and a light side of the divine. And that in the human being, both of those things are kind of finding their, their, their place. They're kind of, um, those elements are in us. And yeah. so we're kind of burdened with this great and terrible gift of creation and destruction, just like God is. Yeah. So again, there's this Gnostic theme of, of growing up into this realization that, um, yes, we are given the creative gifts and the terrible power of the divine. And what are we going to do with that? I'm reminded when you say that, uh, getting into some of the comic book ideas, I'm reminded of uh, Captain America, and particularly um, in the first movie, when when uh, the, the, the military is about to create the super soldier, and Tommy Lee Jones is the, the hard-ass general who wants to give the thing to the most physically fit specimen this big kind of bully guy who's a, a, you know, one of the soldiers, but the scientist wants to give it to the 90, 98 pound asthmatic weakling because he sees it in his heart. And he, and, and the whole theme of that, there's, you know, it's a, there's like a 15 minute interlude in the middle of the film when, you know, Steve Rogers is the one that dives on the hand grenade. Right. The, and, and the doctor says, this is the one, this is the, the kind of person who should get this because you, General, don't understand how powerful this is. And this guy has the heart to be able to just sort of ethically and morally withstand this lightning bolt from the gods. We're going to make this guy into a superman, something like a god. I want somebody who can wield that power responsibly. I want, and he says to Steve Rogers, you know, you deserve this because of what's in your heart. Right. So there, there is that you were talking, you talked about a lot of different things. So the Gnosticism and then Tolkien's Catholic perspective, eventually where Kripal is going with this is um, evolving we all are going we are all in the process as a species of evolving into something more than we are right so you can use the word god if you want we're evolving into gods and the idea of the self-authorization is you are the writer of this story all of the things that are coming at you that are confusing and and 
why is God so evil? Why sometimes like, why would God pick on poor Job in the way that he did? Ultimately, the point of this is it's all coming from Job, right? Like his trials and, and tribulations are self-selected in a, in a way that he's not necessarily conscious of, right? But that's where it's coming. The awakening that Kripal is talking about is realiz- realizing that and realizing like, oh, if I'm in control of this, then I don't have to keep doing these horrible things to myself. <laughs> I can change right, it. Right, right. right. And we improve the conditions of, of the material world. Um, you know, this is, this is also a very Sri Aurobindian integral yoga thing too. That, that is, that is, I think mentioned in this book as well. Um, and it's this idea or, or Bindo had that, that the physical conditions of mortal life of mortal existence, um, can become, uh, divinized can become transmuted. And that's kind of a bold statement. It's, it's not saying like, look, the world's always going to be really really difficult and there's going to be death and suffering the way there always has been. Um, Orbindo talked about the idea that there can be a new kind of life and that human beings can, in a certain sense, become these, he called them Gnostic beings. Basically, we'd be these little divinizers that transform the state of the material world to something much better, much more, uh, much more free of suffering much more spiritually realized and divinized. And that's a very bold statement. I think it sinks in very well here with, with Kripal's themes of, of this. Um, and, and perhaps we should move into alienation now. Okay. Things are going to get interesting. So this is number, number three in his list of seven mythemes that define the super story, as he's calling it. Um, the first one, again, just going over them, was divination and demonization. And then orientation which is seeing all the all the good stuff is somewhere else right and you would need to to journey there to participate in it the third one is alienation and Kripal writes the first discovery which emerged gradually from modern cosmology involved the mind-boggling realization that the age scope and workings of the physical universe are not what our ancient stories claimed Accordingly, the gods and their wisdom no longer came from the east, from the primordial past, or even from our small stellar neighborhood, the sun, moon, and planets of traditional astrology. They came from the vast reaches of outer space. They now watch us. They guide the development. Hold on, I can't change the page. They guide the development of human civilizations that manipulate our religious beliefs and mythologies. I'm going to read that again. They guide the development of human civilizations. They manipulate our religious beliefs and mythologies. They visit us, spy on us, sometimes even abduct us using their mysterious phantom ships. Having once colonized the earth, we now realize that we are ourselves a colony. So now we've moved many, many thousands of years ahead into the stories that we tell ourselves. And we've arrived sometime, I would imagine, in the late 1800s when, you know, Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, right? And then moving into the 20th century where we're seeing flying saucers we're being abducted by aliens we're writing we're we're producing movies about them and 
novels and, and all of that stuff, but our perspective has shifted so that these are the stories we're telling ourselves. What's out there and far, far away is really far away now. It's, it's, it's in outer space. It's maybe Star Wars, sure, but I'm thinking more like it's Close Encounters of the Third Kind is kind of what they're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and right before that, too, the, the way he sets it up is good and, and helpful. That, you know, the, the, the place or the locus of wisdom is somewhere else, and now it really is literally somewhere else in, in the sense that, you know, um, the new Atlantis, the new site of ancient wisdom, the new, new realm of the gods is, um, I don't know, how would we say it? Uh, it's modernized in the religious imagination of a secular world that has a lot of knowledge about the physical cosmos that studies right. different planets. So now they have different locations, you know, aliens uh, beaming in uh, information to our brains from Sirius B, you know, or, or, or Zeta Reticuli, right? Mm-hmm. So now, now the religious imagination of moderns, there's still divinization going on, there's still orientation going on, but now it's done in the context of a secular cosmology that has physical stars and galaxies and nebula and other dimensions. And so the language of uh, our religious imagination gets translated into these different themes. Um, And then he mixed in some other interesting things in there, right? Like not just outer space, but the whole idea of like, well, we've colonized the planet. What if we ourselves are a colony of some other, you know, super cosmic um, civilization? And then the other thing that right is is the is the divination part divinization part is that these forces might be guiding our evolution or we the demonization that. part they might be manipulating us mm-hmm. he says uh, we see that in in two thousand one you and I took a look at that movie mm-hmm. um, a little while ago a couple of years ago now yeah. Uh, so yeah we we have all of these different themes and we can see how just very clearly how a lot of science fiction is playing with so many of these ideas all at once. They're all kind of packed together, whether it is um, 2001 A Space Odyssey or a little scarier, like, I don't know, take your pick, right? Um, Alien, <laughs> right? You were both thinking of that. So, and, and also, you continue to see a little bit more power and potential for agency coming to to us in this perspective. As, as the perspective changes to alienation, it's again, it's now, um, oh, I wrote a note down there, the stage where spiritual orientation becomes suddenly science-based, far, far away becomes literal, and fairies become ET, the extraterrestrial. It's the same idea, but it comes from an idea that we have a better understanding of it. It's interesting that our better understanding of it can, can make us more you know equally afraid as someone living in a tree is afraid of the of a saber-toothed tiger or whatever right i mean it, it, it he says well what you just said the devonization and the demonization they manipulate our religious beliefs and mythologies these are conspiracy theories right yeah but, yeah like um chariots of the gods and and yeah books like that but um, they, they it reorients us as more participatory in it like even if it's only to the extent of we've awakening to the next level right it's not the it's not the final level but it's slightly more awake right like oh 
it's not all this stuff where that you know it's not well we have a better understanding of cosmology but it's interesting that when you have a better understanding of cosmology the need to tell ourselves these stories the need to to hear them the need to write them the need to feel like we're participating in them in some way does not go away it just it, it just it morphs with our level of understanding mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and there's also so much and this is the thing that that Kripal is looking at too with these stories not that they're just stories but that um paranormal experiences themselves if we go down that route that rabbit hole um which Kripal does in many of his books and especially too, the most recent one called the flip and about scientists who kind of have these metanoic experiences where they kind of in, in a sense have a conversion experience about the paranormal um but in in the context of this book the the experiences people claim to have around the paranormal ufos alien abductions you know not just the 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 popular imagination of these events like betty and barney hill is a famous one um but the people who are actually experiencing them are 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 experiencing them as alienation rather than fairies coming and taking them away in the night so so jacques valet talks about this idea that that alienation in Kripal's sense is a kind of a modern mythology. Whatever we're encountering in these events, if there is a reality behind it, is the same kind of intelligence that pre-modern times was encountering. It's just that they, there's a kind of a level, and he gets into this in, in this book too, there's a level of theatrics about these encounters with the paranormal yes. that somehow our cultural imagination, and this is part of this idea, of participation is involved in the way we encounter these beings is involved in the way we have paranormal experiences. So there's a kind of a participation that culture is always having with these strange events, these anomalous events, whether we relegate them only to like cultural imagination and pop culture, or if we actually consider some of these deeper experiences as, as, as being real on some level, there's this, there's this translative effect that's going on here. Yeah. And, 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 in that regard, he talks a great deal about the idea that um, artists and storytellers are, they are doing what, like, you know, Joseph Campbell talks about going out on the adventure and bringing the gold back, right? They are communicating with, you know, what the, what the ancient Greeks called the muses. There is some kind of divine entity that they, that the, that, the storyteller literally prays to and asks for a story and they give him one. Right. And, and what one thing that Kripal is saying is like, so this is how this, these intelligences, as you just described them, this is how they're disseminating their message to everybody. It is going through the people who write comic books. It is going through Tolkien. Right. And he takes the, that message and writes some wild thing that, that almost always, if, it, if it's any good, hits on the same points, right? Because we can, we, we can do this all right down the line. We can name characters and start fitting them into how this works. There's a, there's a consistency to the message, and the message is disseminated through art. And in popular culture in the 20 first century and the 20th century 
it's reaching more and more people, more and more instantaneously. I mean, the invention of the printing press in, what was it, the 1400s, I guess, or 50, whatever that was, 1400s, um, that exponentially allowed for a more spreading of any kind of message, right? Where we are right now, it's all instantaneous. Um, and it is disseminating this message to pull the culture along. I was going to say up, but I mean, it's really along, like, like the wake of a ship, right? The, 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 there's a message in that ship, and that ship is, you know, whatever, the Avengers or, or you know, whatever that is. And a lot of people watch it and take away, uh, you know, I, I, I did a podcast about Black Panther when it came out with, um, with Jeff Salzman. And we talked a lot about how it's basically King Arthur. It's the same story of, you know, the, the, the king becomes sick and the land suffers for it. You know, when the wrong king usurps power and his whole, you know, the suit is Excalibur and all, it's, it's the same exact story all the way through. And they're not all necessarily King Arthur, but they're all of our stories are, are doing that. If they're any good, if people like them, mm-hmm. because people like them because they, they feel that, that some kind of communication coming through that is not what they're normally thinking about. It's, it's more, it's from a different level. It's something like that. But Let's I just, I, of that. Yeah. Let's, I think radiation would be good to bring in here actually, because okay. it's, it's sort of talking about what that, what that is, right? Like that, that, in order to uh, heal the sick land, in order to realize our potential, there, there's these hidden powers yes. that we can access, right? We can, we can become more than we are, and that these forces and intelligences are sort of guiding that process for better or worse, and ambiguously, but there are certain abilities that we can kind of bring out of ourselves. And four and five both kind of look at that, but so radiation. Hold, hold that thought, and I'll read the radiation one. So, so number four of the seven mythemes um, after alienation is radiation. And Kripal writes, the second discovery involved the equally stunning realization that matter itself is not material, but energetic and potential. That the further one goes down into the secret life of matter, the stranger things appear until one encounters a kind of pure potency, a power that is literally everything. Eventually, we figured out how to release this power, how to actualize the cosmic potential of matter itself. Thus freed, this force can serve us, transform us, maybe even save us. It can also utterly destroy us. So radiation, you were just speaking on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that also um, makes me think of, again, of, of answer to Job in uh in the way in which Jung talks about the 20th century and the, and the powers and the forces that we've unleashed literally in the atomic bomb as well, um, that, that we crack open matter and within matter are these amazing potentials, these strange forces. Um, this is a theme actually that comes up a lot and, and he brings this up specifically and he calls it radiation because radiation is, it's, it's, it's like the, the go-to motif for gaining some kind of power, right? Particularly um, in comic books. Yes, particularly in comic books. It's, you it's know, and you also, you see, um, 
you see it play out. So we just talked about Captain America. You should have this power because of what's in your heart, right? So radiation introduces into the into the comic book world this sort of element of randomness. Like so, you look at Spider Man. Spider Man is bitten randomly by a radioactive spider, right? <laughs> and then what's the the very famous lesson of Spider Man is with great power comes great responsibility, right? He Peter Parker has to learn that. It costs him the life of his Uncle Ben to, to, to learn that that lesson. But but Peter Parker has the right kind of heart for it. But the radiation in in as as explained to us in the world of comic books introduces this randomness. It can transform us, maybe even save us of reading crap again, or it can utterly destroy us. Because I'm trying. Who's a who's a radioactive bad guy, or or even the Hulk? The randomness the Hulk, of the yeah. Hulk is so. That's a pure creation of of, of radiation, um, and he can be unbelievably destructive. He can also save us. There's something mm-hmm. heroic about him. And then I don't know. Uh, the abomination is is a Hulk foil. The leader, remember, who's who has the Hulk's. Uh, radio ra- irradiated brain, so he's incredibly smart, but he's also evil, right? So there is no. I'm trying to get. I'm trying to work back to the Job idea that you're talking about. There's no guarantee here. You are still doing this yourself. So if you want to be evil and you get Hulk level radiation in your brain, you become the leader. And you you hatch all these incredibly complex evil schemes to that could possibly destroy the world, right? Um, and I'm just I'm not thinking of other radioactive villains, but I'm sure there's a million of them. Oh hell, even like uh, David Lynch in in the new Twin Peaks season from a few years back. Um, part of part of the origin story of Bob has to do with uh, the the first atomic bomb being set off in the desert, in, uh, in the, somewhere in the forget where it was let's see it was in arizona new mexico Alamos, probably yeah yeah but it, it was that event that unleashed this kind of powerful monstrous force yeah in in uh in this sort of mythology that david lynch is, is working on and lynch is very sensitive to this kind of these kind of myth memes i think in in his own in his own work so um yeah the theme of radiation comes up constantly um, but then it I don't know. Up, like, it, it's this, it's it's the element of randomness to it that mm-hmm. I, again, I think Kripal is working his way towards the idea of an awakening to the potential to be self-authoring, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. so through radiation, all of the powers of the gods, right from from the earlier levels of what we've been discussing, what we see as the powers of the gods are drifting to us. Figuratively, in the stories, and literally, we're yeah. making atom bombs. We're making atomic power. Um, that means you can feed and, and people and, and energize cities, but you could also have Fukushima and Chernobyl and Nagasaki. You know, there's a random element to it. And what's the randomness? It's you. Mm-hmm. Are you are you Peter Parker or or are you the abomination? You could be either. Right. There's a little, there's that little wedge of that, that of the wedge of randomness creates that opportunity to make a choice, right? That's where we mm-hmm. begin to exercise this self autonomy that he's talking about, and I think it's good to bring in mutation here as well, 
yeah. right? Because of coming along with radiation, of course, are systematically mutations, transformations yeah. of our genetics. That's always kind of part of the story in, in a lot of these comic books. But then, of course, as a theme in itself, I think is, is a kind of a counterpart to radiation. So let me read what Kripal says, and then I'll turn that over to, to Jeremy, because Jeremy, by the way, hosts a podcast called Mutations. I do. And it, <laughs> it, it is a, it's a, uh, a theme and the, the terminology used by Gebser, and Jeremy is a Gebser scholar who has written a book about John Gebser. Um, so Mutation, this is number five, Coming After Radiation. And again, we're getting very, very sciency. We're getting very 20th century with radiation. Um, mutation, the third discovery of science that changed the sacred yet again, involved the realization that sentient life has evolved over billions of years. Like every other species, humanity is a transitional or temporary form only one of countless possibilities that life can be, has, and will take on this planet, and no doubt on countless other planets. In short, life is not human, and it is constantly changing, constantly evolving. Mm -hmm. So maybe talk about how mutation um, involves consciousness, like Gebser's ideas of, of, what are they like? They're like thought mutations or, or can you explain that? Yeah. So yeah, the, for Gebser, uh, you know, he was borrowing this uh, to some degree during his time uh, from biology. And so he's directly influenced by this, but just as a kind of a pre pretext, alienation, radiation, and mutation. He's saying the first, second, and third discoveries of science, right? Alienation is the physical cosmos radiation is the atomic age, right? The age of the atom bomb, the age of sort of cracking open matter itself as a kind of um, a mythologized theme of the 20th century. And now mutation is, is the life sciences. It's, the, it's, the, it's this other um, discovery of the scientific world of the evolution of life itself, that we are transitional, that all life is transitional, that um, life is in this process of constant mutation and recreation, right, through these kind of evolutionary leaps. Um, so Gebser kind of understood it as these dis discontinuous leaps of consciousness, of the way in which he called them um, a kind of a, a cultural phenomenology. So the way in which we orient ourselves around time and space and self and world go through these discontinuous jumps where the old form sort of breaks down and this new creative mutation that springs out of, out of, out of consciousness, however you want to define that, right? Origin, he called it. Um, the spiritual, he called it. Uh, breaks forward in this new creatively realized potential that masters a dimension of the world in a different way than the previous one had. Um, so that's sort of a theme here that, that I like to use in terms of like thinking about our own time but I think Kripal is using that here in a similar way, but also kind of going like this is this is a one of the breakthroughs of the modern twentieth the 20th century, 19th century that also fed into this new religious imagination, this theme of mutation. We have X-Men, right? We have Sri Aurobindo, who famously is sort of taking this theme as part of his integral yoga and saying, you know, humankind is a transitional being. And this idea that we can take evolution into our 
into our own hands in that sense that we're going to get to in the next in the next few themes. Um, but yeah, mutation is is it's it's that pretext about um, the possibility that life is mutagenic, it's transformative, and it goes through these processes where we become something else and become something other, right? Um, and and to have a cosmology where human beings themselves are not static but part of this evolution of life itself is just it just opens up deep time it opens up the history of evolution and then it also as a science fiction theme for our imagination it opens up immense possibilities for the future well, what are we becoming you know um are the alienation aspects of the gods that are influencing us in science fiction and uh and and comic books are we becoming like them you know are we gaining these supernatural powers to unlock and harness you know the forces of matter itself um are we going to become like you know the monolith the beings who created the monolith right, right. Like, um, david bowman becomes <clears throat> the star child that's kind of this grand cosmic mutation on the more smaller kind of but still interesting levels like x-men everyone it's this theme that like oh, all of a sudden there's a whole generation of people who are gaining powers right they're they're able to be telepathic or to fly or to stop time or like so we're playing with these themes even on that level too as these kind of sidic city powers right s-i-d-d-h-i sort of supernatural abilities that are awakening in us so yeah, it's it's a great it's a great theme in and of itself. It has so many different uh, applications for the the comic book world. There's a implied in that alienation, uh, radiation, mutation. Um, there's a series of not of, of realizations. It it shows like how if if you look back through history, like recognizing. Um, even the, the second one, uh, orientation, recognizing that there's more outside your own village, right? Then you start having the heroes who wander out there and bring stuff back, right? So recognizing through alienation that there's, again, more more out there outside your village, but your village had become the whole earth because of the previous stages of realization and you know, the realization that the world is bigger causes you to develop tools, go outside, find things that you can bring back, like learning how to work with metal instead of stones and things like that, right? You, everything starts to become more and more. You're building cities now. All, you know, things are developing. Alienation, the idea that, oh, my God, like there's this whole thing out, out in, in, in space and we're actually a little, we're tiny moves to the need to discover the meaning of radiation. You're finding things that are enormously uh, enormous. <laughs> You're finding things that are enormous and things that are unbelievably small within radiation that, again, expands your view of the world in all these different directions. And mutation implies using those tools, right? Using the, the greater understanding to again, move to another level, right? So it all happens rather naturally. And again, Kripal is saying these stories are all part of that and they may or may not actually be, you know, voices from beyond, not unlike, uh, you know, a parent whispering something into the crib, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that 
like every day is an awakening for an in, for an infant into into a greater understanding until it gets to the part where they can climb out of the crib and then they start discovering all kinds of stuff it's a constant discovery and and then uh incorporating whatever it is that you just discovered into the new you right mm -hmm. it's always a new you which um i think could maybe move us to the next the yes. next thing yeah. so after mutation comes realization okay so in the first stage <clears throat> um which was divination divinization sorry in the first stage an author artist or reader begins to realize that paranormal events are real and moreover that they reveal a dimension of the world that works remarkably like a text or a story through the uncanny practices of writing reading and artistic production these individuals come to realize that we are all figments of our own imagination that we are caught in a story or stories that we did not write and that we may not even like so we're getting back to the to the story of job again it's a story yes. that job is the victim of a story that he did not write but he's in it <laughs> and you might not even like it Exactly. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're we're here. Just letting you know, I do have to run it the top of the hour because yeah. of the, my my class. But um, I think we have enough time to squeeze in some good content about these two. Okay. Here, but realization. Um, now, this is where, like, the, I think the the pretext of everything else, uh, one through five, sets this up, right? And this is where we jump into more paranormal themes, where writers and he's talking about this I, he mentions in the book many different stories of the bi biographies of science fiction writers comic book writers that are exploring these themes in depth suddenly kind of becoming involved in their own stories or their own stories spilling out into reality i think the it's called in the 1970s and eric davis um has popularized the term uh, high weirdness this idea that our, our fiction begins to spill into our reality. And then these authors are beginning to have these realizations that, well, okay, well, maybe, as you said earlier, the text and reality are kind of like one another, that somehow we are being written and perhaps even unconsciously writing ourselves as a kind of a, a lulling about in the unconscious. Um, and we need to wake up from that or that we have the potential to wake up from that. And it's, it's, it's a realization of that ability, right? It's a realization of that. The author begins to realize that paranormal events are real, right? And that there's this dimension of the world that is like a text, that is like a story, that narrative and ontology are, are kind of spilling into one another. And then that kind of like really opens up all these new possibilities that, okay, well, if life and reality is like a story, then who's writing us and do we have the potential to take that pen or to take that script and, and write it ourselves? What would it mean? And this is a very, again, this is sort of a very Gnostic interpretation because the Gnostics are kind of doing that too. Like there's these, there's this demiurge, right? There's this um, God who is not the ultimate God. There's this, this divine force or authority which is controlling things, right? Or which is controlling the narrative. It's controlling the creation. 
but we can be free of that if we somehow find a way to like write ourselves out of that or to rewrite the story or to hack the code, right? The matrix is a great um, theme here. It fits right into this one, um, this idea that we can author ourselves. So yeah, there's just so much packed into this one. I, I feel like we could do a whole episode looking at realization in comic books and science fiction. <laughs> we could start with the matrix, right? <laughs> um, so Anyway, yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on this one? Um, well, I think, so the realization, I mean, so the second one is, the, the last one, sorry, the seventh one is going to be authorization. So realization that this is happening, that the story is being written by someone, which is, you know, I'm glad you were talking about Gnosticism, which, would you know, brings in certainly any Philip K. Dick kind of angle on it as well but it so it is the idea of the simulation the matrix right are we living in a simulation um a realization that something like that is happening which is kind of dire and 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 frightening you know such such things are you know that's kind of it, it's a frightening thought because it's it's confusing it, it it takes you away from damn it i thought i knew what was going on for a minute there and then you just pulled the rug out from under me again right um i'm looking at a note from kripal he says somewhere in the book i had it written down but um he says that the man of tomorrow superman is called the man of tomorrow uh, which suggests that Superman is functioning as a model for the future evolution of human nature, which I think is a, a, a large part of the point of, of what Kripal is, is getting at. Because um, there's a lot in this book, by the way. He talks a lot about paranormal stuff. He talks a lot about people that are having like paranormal experiences and UFO type stuff. Um, I'm looking at other things he said. He was talking about the the. He's talking about one of the creators of Superman, um, and he says Alvin Schwartz was this creator of Superman a long time ago. Was entering the stage of realization, that is, he was beginning to realize that even as he wrote Superman, even as he wrote, and especially when he wrote, he was being written, and that the paranormal like the person, is first and foremost a story. So you were talking before about the sort of theatrical nature. Like if you if you take a step back and look at the world, like, I mean, look at what's going on right now with the, the president of the United States and the coronavirus and all this. It's like a TV show. In fact, he literally <laughs> talks about the ratings that he's getting. <laughs> <laughs> which is it's it's mind-boggling and it, and it does make you think like this isn't real right like is this really happening because it's a little too strange um he had the sense that he was being written and that the paranormal like the person is first and foremost a story um there was one other thing that i oh this is the other uh, realization that uh, Alvin Schwartz had, which is he says, you can't have a Superman without a Clark Kent. So we're, we're talking about you as a human being 
evolving into something higher, right? You've been bitten by a radioactive spider or, or whatever has happened to you. You can't be that without Clark Kent, because as he says, no one can live all the time at that level of experience. So what he's suggesting is it's quite possible to have realizations that the experience of paranormal things are real, but you're not going to be able to be there all the time. Right. He, he tells another story about um, Barry Windsor Smith. And I'm just going to do this one from memory. But I mean, he'd had all these wild paranormal experiences where he was like almost like he was having some kind of a seizure or something and was, you know, seeing a, what he described as a presence. It, it sounded like, a you know, a very severe acid trip or something like that. Um, and he was living in that world of, you know, way up here with eyes wide open and, and constant realization and, and awakening to one level after the next. And he started to realize that he couldn't take it anymore. And, and he said that he had an experience that because this presence that he was talking about seemed intelligent and it was trying to tell him something. It was like, look, this is what everything's really like. You're come on, I'll show you. And he basically was on the verge of having a nervous breakdown. He couldn't handle it anymore. And he somehow communicated that to this presence. And he said, the presence left. But he said, what I felt, and I'm, this is total paraphrasing, but I felt this overwhelming sense of regret coming from the presence that it was sorry that it did this. Like, it's almost like taking you know, a child that's not ready for this information yet and showing that child something too grown up, like violence or some horrible thing. And then realizing, oh, that child, you know, the, the cliche, the kid's going to have nightmares. Well, yeah, right. Not, they're not ready for that. So through that anecdote of Barry Windsor Smith, you do get this sense of, um, I know you got to go, but you get this sense of continuity anyway. Um, so I want to move to the last one real quick. We'll cover it real quick and then you can take off. So after realization, which is all of that, comes authorization. It's stage seven. And it says in the second stage, which was orientation, uh, in the second stage, this insight into the realization that we are being written matures into the even more stunning idea that we can do something about this that we can write ourselves anew. The final secret of the super story then is that if we are indeed above in quotation marks or super it, if we are above it, then in some way that we do not yet understand, we are authorizing it. We do not need to be puppets at the mercy of some neurological programmer uh, or for that matter, some faithful believer like Job in the dictates of some authoritarian sky god. We can become our own authors. We can recognize that we are pulling our own strings, that the angels and aliens, gods and demons are us. Mm -hmm. That's the opening. We, Jeremy and I just discussed like the opening segment of this book, and then the rest yeah. of the book goes into great detail about each one of these things. Yeah, that's, um, well, authorization is sort of, if realization is the beginning of the matrix, then authorization is the end of the film. When Neo 
is is you know dialing and giving a call to the the, the agents to the forces mm-hmm. the archons uh, uh, and saying you know we we're gonna wake up and it's up to you what you're gonna do with this so suddenly we become uh, we realize the potential we realize the capacity to dream with reality um, and this is a, this is sort of just like really briefly, this is this is kind of what so many of the uh, different scholars of cultural evolution also talk about. Gebser says the integral consciousness is participation, where suddenly the, all of the different phases of human history and human consciousness all kind of become accessible to us. We're no longer kind of asleep in any one of them. We're awake to the whole thing. Um, Owen Barfield talks about it as the original participation, now the final participation. So there's this theme of participating in creating this reality and becoming like the gods, um, and the same thing in integral yoga. So, you know, this, this is a kind of a theme that, that shows up, obviously, in a lot of these more transpersonal movements and consciousness studies scholars, but it's also a theme that shows up all over science fiction, at least the kind of more interesting renditions of this theme like the matrix or like um you know grant morrison's work i think which is really good and is worth referencing for those of you who have a chance to dig in uh the invisibles Mm -hmm. the invisibles is all about this and and really most of morrison's work explores the theme of okay well what if if life is like a comic book uh then can we sort of jump off the pages and write ourselves and you know there's this there's this emphasis on creativity and then authorizing creativity and this is the kind of this is the step beyond just exercising egoic will this is kind of now moving into this deeper process of self-authoring and um yeah this is like one of my favorite books we're gonna need like we're gonna need like a two two hour session to go over this one hour is definitely not enough i think we can return to this one this was awesome it's great to see you again great to talk to you again demonstrate that you are not civilized.